Hi, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. I need your support. You can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible audiobook from audibletrial.com science. Just for getting you to try them out, Audible will pay me a small reward. Or you could click on an Amazon link on diffusionradio.com and Amazon will kick a few percent of what you pay them my way. Please, make a donation directly with the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition... Fame Lab New South Wales with bacteria, Lavecchia, and wellness. But first up, here's the news. Where does the fact go when you lose weight? Ruben Meerman, known as the surfing scientist and famous from his appearances on TV, science and children shows, co-published a paper with the head of the University of New South Wales School of Biotechnology and Biomolecular Sciences, Professor Andrew Brown. From a survey of 150 doctors, dietitians, and personal trainers, they found that most health professionals couldn't answer the question correctly and wrongly thought that the fat was turned into energy or heat when you lost weight. This would require nuclear processes in your body if it was true. The correct answer is that when you lose weight, you breathe out most of the fat as thin air. Ruben approached Professor Brown after interviewing him for the Catalyst TV program. His approach was to track every atom from food to fat loss. Human fat molecules consist of a lot of carbon atoms, about twice as many hydrogen atoms, and a small number of oxygen atoms. They knew from basic biochemistry that the complete oxidation of 10 kilograms of human fat requires 29 kilos of inhaled oxygen, producing 28 kilos of carbon dioxide, CO2, and 11 kilograms of water, H2O. So how do you tell how much mass of digested fat is leaving the body and in which way? The answer was that you examine every atom in the process and see where it goes. The carbon and hydrogen atoms are converted by our bodies into carbon dioxide, CO2, and H2O water, respectively. In 1949, researchers used a heavy isotope of oxygen to track where it went in the body as it was converted from fat into carbon dioxide and water. They found that from six atoms of oxygen in the fat, four atoms of oxygen went to your breath and two atoms of oxygen went to the water. If you look at the structure of fat molecules, you can calculate that 16% of the mass of the fat will be converted to water in your body which you can excrete as faeces or bodily fluids. The other 84% of the mass becomes carbon dioxide and leaves your body as you breathe out invisibly. A good pair of lungs are your best friend in weight loss. 
Of course, you only convert more of the fat into more of the carbon dioxide you breathe out by doing more exercise. Breathing faster without doing more exercise will just leave you dizzy. The paper was published in the British Medical Journal and was titled, When Somebody Loses Weight, Where Does the Fat Go? Listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. This week I have the first three of ten presentations given at FameLab New South Wales. FameLab is a competition for public communication of science by early career researchers run every year by the British Council. The British Council is an international organisation promoting culture and education in the arts and sciences. Jackie Randalls from Inspiring Australia spent the day with the New South Wales entrants, helping them perfect their presentations. The judges for the New South Wales State Heat of the competition were Helen O'Neill, the Country Director of the British Council Australia, formerly Senior Advisor to the Australian Arts Minister. Dr. Angela Crean from the University of New South Wales School of Biological Earth and Environmental Sciences, where she studies non-genetic inheritance, parental effects, sperm quality and plasticity. And Rose Hiscock, Director of the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences. They were judging the values of good science, persuasive communication and style. The winner and runner-up will go to Fremantle in Western Australia to compete for the national title. The Australian winner will travel to Britain. The host of the night was the surfing scientist and star of ABC TV's Catalyst, Ruben Meerman. He recently published a paper called When Somebody Loses Weight, Where Does the Fat Go? in the British Medical Journal. And our first speaker is Ms Sangeeta Bhatia. She's from the University of Western Sydney and her talk tonight is titled Mathematical Group Therapy, Solving Bacteria's Identity Crisis. Please make a very welcome. Last night, when I walked into a bar, there on the table was sitting my friend, the bacterium cell, sobbing hysterically. I gently poked it to find out what was wrong. My friend, it seemed, was having an existential crisis. Who am I? What am I? Where do I come from? There, there now, don't you cry. Everything will be all right. I'll help you. In fact, your last question, where do you come from, is the topic of my research. You don't say. Yeah, really. Let me tell you more. You see, dear bacterium, for millions and millions of years, your great, 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 great grandparents have been very good at their job of making babies. They made lots of babies and give each baby a pretty exact copy of their DNA. But sometimes, very infrequently, some biological accidents would make the copy of a DNA just a tiny bit different from that of its parents. Over time, these tiny differences began to pile up. The result, as you know, is that your genetic content is so different from your ancestors, 
you're sitting here wondering who you are. Mm, and you say you can help me? Well, yeah, I can. You see, it's a very tricky problem uncovering your uh, family history and making a family tree for you. So we have to look at your DNA and your cousin's DNA and compare them and figure out who is related to whom and how. I am a mathematician and I design algorithms to do precisely that. Of course, I am not the only scientist working on this problem, but I am probably the only one using this. Think of this Rubik's Cube as your great-great-great-grandparents' DNA. Okay? So I change it a little bit, then I change it a little bit, and then I change it some more until I end up with yours. Now, to figure out where you came from, all I have to do is to trace my steps back. Now, this is a mathematician's favorite joy, and there's a whole field of algebra studying the arrangements of this cube. So how do you go from one arrangement to another and back? But the thing is, no one has applied these ideas to your problem, and that's exactly what I'm doing. So you're telling me that you get paid to play with this toy? Well, yeah, in a way, but it is super cool and super important too. Let me give you an example. Suppose I had a vaccine that killed off one of your cousins, and if I have your family tree, I can figure out that it will just about work on you too. What? And I thought you were my friend. Uh-oh. In my excitement, I'd said a bit too much, but there was no help for it. I left my sobbing friend on the bar table and went back to do my super cool, super important PhD. Thank you. Fantastic, thank you. Thank you. Okay, so you're using the, the maths to figure out the phylogeny. One application is, say, with vaccines. What else is it important for? Uh, there are many, many examples, so I can give you one more example. So, the, as you said, the, the technical term for this is phylogeny. So this family tree of things, it informs policies like global biosecurity. So what governments would do is, uh, do is look at this uh, phylogeny of different uh, plants, and they would decide on what plants to let inside the borders of the country or not. So there are many other important things like that. So this is one more example. Just talk to me about the Rubik's Cube. Do you, do you really use it in your, <laughs> in your practice? <laughs> Not really. This is actually uh, the thing that kind of, you know, the symbol of group theory. Symbol of, so it's the thing when I say group theory, people think of that. So. Very nice. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Sangeeta. Our next speaker is Dr. Sophie DeMayer and her talk is named Lebeckia, a perennial for deep sandy soils. Please welcome Sophie. Have you ever asked yourself, why are these lamb shanks so juicy and delicious? Well, the answer is, what do you feed the sheep? So I would like to introduce you to my research on sustainable sheep farming solutions for Australia. I'm not sure if you're aware, but Australia is one of the biggest producers of lamb meat in the world, and we're also one of the biggest consumers of lamb. Each of you consume about 10 kilograms of lamb per year, unless, of course, you're a vegetarian. So in order to have this amount of meat, we need to be able to have enough food for our sheep. 
So about 10 years ago, our group started looking around the globe for plants that are adapted to the poor soils in Australia. After many kilometres of exhausting <laughs> coming through dry bush, we have found this really special plant, Lebecchia, in the Western Cape region of South Africa. So Lebecchia is a shrubby legume that grows about knee high and that is very well adapted to poor soils with limited water and that the sheep are happy to feed on. So this plant basically gives the farmers the opportunity to produce high quality forage when there is basically nothing available. So we're able to get happy, healthy sheep that is very important for our export. But this is not the only incredible thing about this plant. Plants also need, apart from water, fertilizer to have good yield. So as I mentioned before, Lebecchia is very good with water. It only needs a little amount. But the second incredible thing about this plant is that it can produce its own fertilizer. So it doesn't do this just by magic. It doesn't drop out of thin air. It does this by collaborating with particular soil bacteria. So this symbiosis with these soil bacteria is so efficient that the fertilizer produced by this plant is not only available to itself, obviously, but for plants that live close by. So our latest research actually shows that if you plant Lebecchia in a particular field, um, the soil fertility increases because we see that wild cereal grasses start popping up whereas the field that you keep right next to it, for instance, is absolutely bone dry and barren, as I have an example of it right here. So the only green thing that you spot is actually Lebecchia, whereas for the rest, there is nothing there whatsoever for the sheep to feed on. So introducing Lebecchia into our farm practices will have three major advantages. First of all, we're able to use farmable land that is otherwise left barren and uh, open to erosion. Secondly, uh, you pr provide sheep with very healthy and fresh food, which is why your meat tastes so juicy. And thirdly, um, after a period of time, it enriches the soil that you can then use for subsequent crops. So enjoy the lamb on your next barbecue. Thank you. Thank you. Just, just a question around the research methodology around the Lebecchia. So tell us what you're doing. Are you planting? Are you, how are you monitoring? How, how are you researching it? Um, so it all started in the lab, in glass yeah. houses, in very contained environments, obviously. Um, so, but now we've proven that it's not going to be the next cane toad. Um, and right. yeah, that we don't have these quarantine issues with it. So now we're actually moved on to field trials where we actually put it in places where it's going to be useful and see what, um, first of all, the sheep, because the sheep don't recognize this plant mm. and sheep are very notorious for uh, daring and trying other things. So that was the first uh, hurdle actually. You described the 
many miles of tramping through barren lands. Tell us more about the, the search for Lebekia around the world. Um, so a lot of it was um, in South Africa um, because South Africa has a very, and the Western Cape region of South Africa is very similar to the regions where we target this plant. Um, so we knew that there must be some plant out there that is thriving in these very sandy soils. So most of our search was around there. But also um, Southern European, so the Mediterranean uh, countries uh, like Greece, the southern part of Italy, Sardinia, all these islands. Um, it sounds very nice as a holiday, but I can assure you if you have to walk with a backpack uh, like through heat and dirt, it's not always that nice. <laughs> Thank you, Sophie. And Sophie's from Murdoch University. Our next speaker is from the University of Western Sydney, uh, Dr. Jennifer Hunter. And uh, she's speaking about measuring health outcomes that are more than the absence of disease. Please welcome Jennifer. Hi, can you believe it? I forgot to bring my props. But I do have my health, or do I? What is health? Maybe I should go and get a health test. Turns out there aren't any. I could get disease tests, blood tests, x-rays galore. But all they'll tell me is that I don't have a disease, or I do. So, as a researcher, I want to measure health. And the best way to measure something, first of all, is you have to understand what it is that you want to measure. So I ask you, what is health? How do I know if I'm healthy? And we ask these questions in in-depth interviews with patients and practitioners, especially those that are interested in making people healthier. And we found some interesting things. The first one, surprise, surprise, it's a tricky question. And part of the reason is because when we have it, we take health for granted. The second thing that we confirmed, which a lot of the experts had already put out their models, but it hadn't been proven yet by asking real people, was there are many parts about being healthy. It's not just physical strength and agility or being mentally healthy, like happy or smart, but that we need to consider our spiritual health, like a sense of purpose in life and connecting. That there's social health. I mean, doesn't everybody want a healthy social life? occupational health. But importantly, you can't separate them. They're connected and interdependent. And there are some overarching themes like vitality and energy and other things like resilience. And then that brought up the question, well, if I've got a cold or a cough, am I now unhealthy? Or in responding to that challenge, Am I becoming stronger and building a strong immune system? And what about people with disabilities? Or as I'm getting older, can I still be healthy 
Is health a perfect state like a top Olympic athlete? Or is it something that we all strive for? Something we can work towards? And in answering these questions and exploring these questions, it now gives us a stronger basis from where to decide how we might measure health that is more than the absence of disease. You know, it was in 1946 the World Health Organization first put that idea out. It's amazing, we've still got a long way to go to really answer health. What is it? Thank you. Very interesting question. Um, in the biological sciences and vet sciences, we have quite a strong definition of what health is or we measure fitness. Do you think you can take any of those ideas from evolution or, or biology and apply it to your question? Yes, you can. But the limitations with most of the biological research is it mainly focuses on one aspect, physical health. But we know from the empirical research, from asking people, it's more than physical health. The same is there's been, actually, there are quite a few good questionnaires from the positive psychology movement. But again, it's only measuring one domain. Psychological well-being is often the term that's used. So the question is, how do we measure this in a holistic way? Just a question about um, the depth interviews or the cohorts that mm. you're working with. What kind of size and how are you configuring and um, constructing those? So the, the pilot work that we have done, what, the idea was to map out all the different ideas. It's, the technique is called phenomenography, like geology. What's the geology of the phenomena? So understanding different people's points of view. And then the idea is that all of that can form one big construct or understanding from everyone's perspectives. I think you're starting to answer the question I've got, which is what happens next in this research? My interest was in what are called patient reported outcomes, so your subjective reporting. But of course, the more I investigated it, the more I realised just like health is multidimensional, so too, if we're going to measure it, we'll need more than just how am I feeling, we'll also need some subjective biological tools as well. Fascinating, okay. thank you. And a big round of applause to Jennifer, please. That was Sangeeta Bhatia talking about bacterial calculations, Sophie DeMeyer on agriculture and sandy soils, and Jennifer Hunter on measuring wellness. I'll play the other presentations in future shows. You can find out more at britishcouncil.org.au slash programs slash science slash famelab. Next up, Derek Muller with I'm Atoms. You can see Derek on his YouTube channel, Veritasium. Protons, neutrons, and electrons The first two in the nucleus The third around it Is mostly empty space 
But it feels solid in any case The elements are all the different types of atoms They differ by the number of protons in the middle Hydrogen has only one But uranium has a ton Oh, it's just chemistry That you and me are made of these atoms Atoms bond together to form molecules Most of what's around in me and you Water, sugar, things yet undreamed of, 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 of Look around, you see the combinations in a eucalypt tree Mandalay's periodicity Gives us sand and water and the air above Of, 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 of Oh, it's just chemistry that you and me are made of these atoms hydrogen oxygen carbon nitrogen make up the world's life forms do 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 you wonder how Matter forms something strange when there's a chemical change. Bo ba 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 And thank you to Joe for the Wi-Fi router and Peter for the monitor. Would you like to hear your voice on Diffusion? Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Kringai, 2 NVR in Nambucca Valley, 2 XX in Canberra, and 3 NBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And do check the website for photos and links connected with this week's show. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. And to take us out, here's Derek Muller singing the rest of I'm Atoms. Where did these atoms come from? They were fused in stars. Light elements combined, releasing light from afar. Fusion in the sun creates helium. 
I guess what I'd be saying is you gotta use your reason To open up your mind and see the cause of the seasons How do we know what's true? A scientific method shows you And it's just chemistry That you and me are made of these atoms Well, atoms bond together to form molecules Most of what's surrounding me and you Water, sugar, sand, and you'll find things Undreamed of So argon, neon, xenon There's no need to overstate Cause we are of course This, this, this world made Atom